0: Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie
1: and I'm Abby
0: and if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode 10 and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie
1: and I have been friends since forever and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All
0: while drinking a nice cup of coffee.
1: Today we'll be discussing the 2019 psychological horror film The Lighthouse. It was written by Robert and Max Eggers and directed by Robert Eggers. It stars Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe, and Valeria Karaman.
0: We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Uh, so okay, before we get started, really, da da da, I want to once again welcome a very good friend of the podcast and one of my best friends, Kate Motherfucking Scully. Say hi, Kate. Hi, everybody. Yay! <laughs> so if you all aren't aware, Kate joined the show back in February to help me do the episode on Alice Lowe's film Prevenge. We asked Kate to join us again for this episode because, like us, she has a lot to say about this film. Maybe even more so. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kate, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and joining us this morning.
2: Thanks for having me back. This is one's kind of a personal favorite, and I cannot wait to talk about it with you.
0: Yes! Okay, so as you all probably can tell, or maybe not, which is great, uh, but if you can, our audio is a little bit different, uh, because all three of us are on a single track, so if you hear some background noise, or if our audio is just a little bit off, that's why. You'll be fine. You
1: <laughs> will be fine. <laughs> We'll be fine. We'll get through this. Listen, if you can get through the first season of Gracie and I recording this show, (laughs) you can get through this episode, I promise.
2: White knuckle it, folks. White (laughs) knuckle (laughs) it.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's get into the the behind-the-scenes and production for this film. So after the success of his debut film, The Vivitch, Robert Eggers' brother, Max Eggers, decided to make a film version of Edgar Allan Poe's unfinished last work, unofficially titled The Lighthouse, in which a man of noble birth and his dog, Neptune, tend (laughs) to a lighthouse. But the man starts to hear strange noises and thinks that maybe the lighthouse isn't so sturdy and that's it that's basically all poe wrote which is unfortunate because it sounds like it was on its way to being a real creeper oh my god i know so robert and max got to work on the script together and as you all know the result is nothing like poe's story (laughs) instead it is loosely based on a story on a story that is actually true and it's about two wikis named thomas oh According to Rosie Fletcher, quote, The story goes that the older Thomas died, but the younger Thomas didn't want to throw his body into the sea for fear of being accused of murder. So instead, he fashioned a coffin for his former colleague and lashed it outside. But rough weather tore the coffin apart, and the younger man could supposedly see from his window the corpse's arm moving in the wind in a fashion which looked as if the rotting body was beckoning to him. I know. So by the time young Thomas was relieved of duty, he'd been driven quite mad by it all. It's known as the Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy and led to reform in policy that meant lighthouses subsequently had to be tended by teams of three. And of course, it's a cool idea for a film, unquote. Uh, And so Eggers actually said, I thought that the fact that they're both named Thomas was interesting and that I could make a cool two-hander about identity that can devolve into something obscure because of that. Uh, And Eggers also based the two characters on the Greek gods Proteus and Prometheus. And we'll talk more about that later. Eggers also admitted that he was heavily influenced by the work of Carl Jung. Again, we'll get into this later. According to David Fear. Which is what a great name, according to David Fear <laughs> oh. <laughs> for Rolling Stone. Uh, David said, "Quote: The literature of Maine-based writer Sarah Orne Jewett served as a significant point of reference for the dialects used in the Lighthouse. Maritime and sur- sur- surrealistic elements from the works of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Herman Melville, and Robert Louis Stevenson also informed the writing of the film." Unquote. In February of 2018, it was announced that Willem Dafoe had been cast in the film after he had emailed Eggers expressing his admiration for the Vavitch. (laughs) Later that month, Robert Pattinson also joined the cast. And according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, quote, from the beginning, Eggers wanted to shoot the film in black and white and a narrow vintage aspect ratio. He also wanted to shoot the film on 35 millimeter film with an orthochromatic aesthetic that evokes 19th century photography in an interview with the LA Times cinematographer Jaron Blaschke I think is how you say their last name said quote the idea of widescreen only came about in the 1950s we wanted to take people back further than that unquote okay so apparently one of the most difficult parts of making this film was the seagulls
2: it's always the animals it's always the animals every time (laughs)
0: So, according to Bill Dessowitz, quote, the final oddity was tracking down trained seagulls for some creepy scenes, but training seagulls had been outlawed in North America and Europe.
1: <laughs> you better not be training those seagulls. <laughs> you better crack don't. down on that. Yeah. <laughs> So
0: we were in a bit of a panic, productions, <laughs> production designer Craig Lathrop said. It turns out there's a guy in England with five seagulls <laughs> who were grandfathered in before the laws changed. It's <laughs> a family business. So, <laughs> so we shot everything on Cape Fortu and we used a puppet stand-in for the actors to interact with on location.
2: Oh my God. We, it's the murder
0: part. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> now there are only four seagulls. <laughs> so oh. in the in post, they went to London and built some small sets and set pieces and redid the action with the trained seagulls who were composed into the scenes with like CGI and stuff. um according to the wikipedia page dedicated to the film the lighthouse had its world premiere at the cane film festival cans Cane? how do you say that word again can Can canis canis no candid canada can i I think it's can i think it's canned. god damn it okay (laughs) damn americans can 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 i'm like
1: (laughs) canis okay it's canis you were so
0: you were so sure (laughs) okay the lighthouse had its world premiere at the Cannes film festival in the director's fortnight section on may 19th 2019 it was also screened at the toronto international film festival and the atlantic film festival in september 2019 the film was distributed by a24 in north america and by focus features internationally and it was released on october 18th 2019 on only a budget of 4 million, the lighthouse was an indie success and made 18.2 million worldwide.! Nice. Ooh. Though many don’t consider the film horror, it is undeniably unsettling. According to Sidney Long quote, Unlike the witch, which harnessed dramatic irony by revealing that the witch was real long before any characters knew otherwise, the lighthouse purposefully keeps its straightforward story shrouded in mystery. Although the characters are surrounded by endless swaths of sea, they are crammed together into their claustrophobic cabin, every corner of which hides another secret or ominous shadow. The use of light and imagery is hauntingly stellar in its ability to both reveal and conceal, adding another brick to the narrative while ripping another hole through the character's psyches." Unquote. And according to Matt Taylor, the lighthouse feels something like a dream. It establishes its own rules quickly and quietly, never announcing its own interior logic, but moving through it with such authority that you can follow along as if you made up the universe yourself. Its dialogue, meticulously constructed by screenwriters Max and Robert Eggers from historical documents dating back to the 19th century, doesn't always make sense, but the film is somehow easy to follow. You don't need to hear every word because the emotion behind the language is so easily felt, and its sudden bursts of violence, sometimes tied into bizarrely (laughs) erotic imagery, is enough to make you jolt up in a cold sweat." Ooh, so with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot?
1: Yeah. In the 19th century, young Ephraim Winslow takes a job caring for a lighthouse as a wiki, along with his cantankerous mate, an old man named Thomas Wake. Wake is very demanding and sometimes difficult to get along with, making Ephraim's days long and tedious. He must do as he's told daily, and his chores include emptying chamber pots, painting the lighthouse, and doing other laborious duties. Wake denies Ephraim access to the light room within the lighthouse, and Ephraim becomes bitter about his territorial nature of the lighthouse. One night, Ephraim sees Wake sneak into the top of the lighthouse and take off all his clothes, basking naked in the light. As the days wear on, Ephraim begins to hallucinate about sea creatures and finds a ceramic mermaid that he uses to masturbate to as he seems to slip into madness. He follows Wake's orders and is forced to listen to his old sailor yarns, and he warns Ephraim to beware of killing or harming the gulls on the island, as they contain the souls of dead sailors. He learns one night, as the pair are dining together, that the last wiki sent to the lighthouse to help Wake lost his mind and died. Ephraim then admits to Wake that he was a timberman from Canada and came to the lighthouse for a new trade and a fresh start. As the days press on and Ephraim's contract comes to its end, the pair wait for his relief to arrive. He discovers a dead gull in the cistern. He is then attacked by a one-eyed gull and kills it out of frustration, ignoring Wake's warnings about the bad luck to follow. After, a violent storm rocks the island, making it impossible for Ephraim's relief to reach them. The two Wikis spend that night getting drunk. Ephraim awakens the next morning to fulfill his chamber pot duty, and as he empties the pot, he discovers a body washed up on the shore that turns out to be a mermaid. He runs back to the cottage and Wake's... And Wake tells him that their rations are depleted, so they dig for a crate outside the cottage in hopes of discovering more rations, but find only bottles full of alcohol. The two continue their drunken shenanigans as they wait for relief, having moments of intimacy and hostility and everything in between. They dance, joke, argue, and eventually Ephraim tries to steal the keys to the lighthouse from Wake. He's unsuccessful, and his hallucinations start to get worse, and he imagines a dead man caught in a lobster trap that matches the description of Wake's last wiki. He admits to Wake that his real name is Thomas Howard, and he assumed the identity of a man that he supposedly watched die after a logging accident. Wake is angry that Howard spilled his beans to him, and Howard prepares to leave the island, but Wake stops him by destroying the only dory they have with an axe. As Howard begins to have a mental breakdown, Wake tells him that he was the one who actually destroyed the dory after chasing him down with an axe, trying to kill him. Wake tells Howard that he doesn't know up from down. The two run out of alcohol to drink and make a concoction of turpentine and honey, drinking it down as the storm rages and eventually destroys the cottage. The following morning, the cottage is flooded and Howard finds Wake's logbook full of critical reports of his service, and he discovers that Wake had planned to fire him without severance. Wake begins to berate Howard about his behavior, and Howard snaps, attacking him and beating him into submission, dragging him outside attached to a leash like a dog. He prepares to bury him alive, and as he does so, Wake curses him to a Promethean fate. Howard finally gets his hands on the key to the lighthouse, but he's stopped by Wake, who appears after freeing himself and strikes him with an axe. However, Howard is able to disarm and kill him before ascending to the lantern room. As he sees the light, he begins to violently scream and falls down the lighthouse steps. A while later, we see Howard laying on the rocks of the island coast, being ripped apart and eaten by seagulls who have disemboweled him oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you
0: abby for that lovely plot summary
1: oh you're welcome
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> so let's talk about the Bechtel test it doesn't pass because there's only one woman in this and she doesn't speak anyway so boo hiss Ah. <laughs> so uh nancy's dream team test is just as just as depressing Sad. yep Uh, So, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. (laughs) And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? Maybe... There's some queer subtext in this. Uh, we'll definitely get into that, too. So yeah. here we go. <laughs> let's get into our discussion. Let's start with the uh, Jungian influences. According to Jess Joho for Mashable, everything Eggers, quote, writes is Jungian inclined, meaning he's working with symbols and archetypes that psychoanalysts Carl Jung described as part of the collective unconscious quote we hammer at home with vaginal keyholes and phallic lumberjack tools and logs unquote he said from the Jungian perspective Thomas and Ephraim could even represent different aspects of the same person's psychology Thomas is like the bestial id giving in all to his beast B- basist, excuse me giving an all to his basist desires and ephraim is like the ego conscientious of social norms and struggling to maintain civility uh this is all supported by the fact that we learn ephraim's real name is also thomas or tommy
1: unquote yeah it really reflects that shadow self that we talk about a lot but mm-hmm. it's almost like both thomas's are younger and older versions of one man's shadow oh okay because no matter how old you are like you cannot escape those dark parts of yourself and i think a lot of people equate being older and wiser to maybe not making the mistakes that a young man could but both men are pretty heavily flawed
0: yes and you know what this makes a lot of sense to me especially since ephraim or young thomas doesn't want to drink alcohol at first because it's against the rules and mm-hmm. so that makes a lot of sense that he's all about like social norms and like this is how we're supposed to be uh and where <laughs> i guess as you get older you know wake is more like fuck the rules like i'm an old yeah. man i can do whatever the hell i want I
2: can do what i want exactly <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. According to Richard Newby, uh, they said, quote, there's something to be said about the power of a name. Defoe's Thomas Wake, whose last name is also a term for disturbed water, has a mysterious background that changes over the course of the film. And as Ephraim steadily sinks further into madness and alcoholic stupor, the two become increasingly similar caught in a literal dance that sees them locking arms and dancing round and round. There is the possibility that Wake is Ephraim's own dark reflection, the worst elements of himself, and his own self-doubts about his moral rightness given form, unquote. And, you know, this was actually my takeaway from the film when I first saw it in theaters. And I'm sort of still on this train of them being possibly the same person.
1: Yes, I agree. Like, I thought that as well, especially after Wake says to Howard that um, he was the one chasing after him with an axe. Yes, that that was it. That was my key, too. And that, you know, he was the one who destroyed the Dory. It's like an old man looking back on his younger self, pointing out his flaws and mistakes. Yes, that is so true. Ross McIndo says
0: about Young and the Lighthouse, quote, according to Young's understanding of human nature, the mild-mannered Winslow could represent the civilized, socialized, higher part of the mind, while Wake embodies the wild animal nature that lies beneath. One of Young's major concerns was the unconscious, the shadowy part of ourselves that even we do not fully recognize or understand. He often referred to this other side of ourselves as the "haha" shadow. Yeah. The two toms often mirror one another, especially as their higher functions weaken and they become more driven by hunger, greed, anger, lust, and fear. Ultimately, Wake even suggests that their tale is taken is their tale is taking place entirely in Winslow's imagination, a psychological journey in which. Everything is merely symbolic. Perhaps this is what Winslow realizes when he stares into the beacon at the end. Unquote.
1: Yes. Also, I want to point out too, psychosexually speaking, mm-hmm. I find it interesting that the innuendos in this film are a combination of human sexuality and the sea. Mm. Um, Kind of like how Wake treats the lighthouse like his lover, while Ephraim is tempted by a mermaid a literal fish human Mm. they are erotically attached to the sea and their duties because their entire lives revolve around it they cannot escape it and it almost becomes an obsession
0: which brings us to our next topic Homoeroticism in the lighthouse. Ooh. Oh, so <laughs> according to Just Joho, if anything can be said to be obvious about the movie, it's the undeniable and mounting homoerotic tension between Thomas and I think I said his name wrong earlier. Is it Ephra- Ephraim?
1: I Uh, am just weird about pronouncing names.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Thomas and Ephraim. I'm going to try to say it right this time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually, homoeroticism is embedded into the symbol of the lighthouse itself, too. It was pretty explicit in the script. The script said that the lighthouse looked like an erect penis. Robert Robert Pattinson (laughs) said this in a Huffington Post interview. Uh, Eggers expanded on that. To say that the queer subtext was always at the heart of the movie's central relationship, but that the whole thing is about power dynamics. So it is about Willem pushing, 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 and there's pent-up anger and pent-up erotic energy and pent-up smells like all the farting. <laughs> That's uh, the farts. <laughs> yes. The farts. I mean, I this movie is about a married couple during quarantine. Oh,
2: absolutely. Yes! <laughs> ten yeah. percent This is
0: exactly what this film is about. Um yes. So there's pent-up smells, right? Okay. Well, where <laughs> is the breaking point? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the eggers the smells the smells the smells at the, the, the breaking point uh but the two sexuality eggers said isn't a binary gay versus not gay it's less about exploring human sexuality or sexual orientation and more about the questions that those homoerotic sexual overtones represent from a broader freudian perspective uh and according to matthew jacobs we see Ephraim furiously masturbating at night sometimes fondling a small mermaid figurine but his fantasies about female sea spirits are intercut with images of a blonde male lumberjack which i think is the gentleman that he kills Mm -hmm. uh after one orgasm ends in tears it's clear that the mermaid lumberjack combo makes him feel well something Maybe Ephraim is bisexual. Maybe the mermaid doll is a displacement of his lust for Thomas and the lumberjack. Maybe he's simply envious of Thomas. Maybe it's something else entirely, unquote.
1: You know, I feel like that was totally done on purpose, though. Like, the mermaid represents a female that is totally, like, unattainable and unnatural for him to be attracted to. Oh my god. That is such a great observation. Yeah. Well... I really do think that Ephraim is meant to be gay. Like, mm. he he never really speaks of having a woman in his life. He only ever speaks about another man. And maybe he was attracted to him and he was so afraid of his sexuality that he thought, you know, it's better to let him die than for me to not be able to have him or to be judged for wanting him. Mm. This film's theme
2: revolves so primarily around identity. And that being the case, sexuality is tied so tightly in with that. Um, Michaela Barton of Flip Screened has been quoted saying, and I love this, the lighthouse is so clearly gay that an analysis of its homoerotic subtext would be like arguing that the sky is blue.
0: Oh. <laughs> ah, yes! now, I, Yeah.
2: <laughs> I love that. I absolutely yes. love that. Um, Eggers, the director, has refused to con- Concretely say whether the characters are gay or straight uh, in an interview with the Huffington Post he said, am I saying these characters are gay? No. Am I, I'm not saying that they're not, either. Uh, forget about the complexities of human sexuality or their particular inclinations. I'm more about questions than answers in this movie. But that also like, why do I have the ambiguously gay duo theme stuck in my head now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Well, and Jess Joho goes on to say that there's a lot of heteronormative stuff in this too, like mm-hmm. Thomas humiliating Ephraim f- by forcing him to do all the more feminine domestic duties, which leads him to even say that he didn't sign up to be "quote unquote anybody's wife," right? And meanwhile, Thomas gets exclusive uh in a way with the phallic symbol of the lighthouse he constantly refers to the lighthouse as she or her quote the sister the lady and the beauty equating her to be a better wife than a living woman and according to defoe the homoeroticism in the film does speak to some aspects of identity and what makes and what it means to be a man unquote uh which now brings us to the lighthouse and toxic masculinity Defoe Mm -hmm. says, quote, toxic masculinity. They're pushing (laughs) each other's buttons out of fear and out of the threat of who they are. And they're both guilty. They have a sense of guilt, of wrong. There's no moral judgment in this story. It's just to watch these two guys struggling to find a way to survive themselves. Really, it's a simple story, but it just gets existential roots and identity and things about masculinity and domination and submission. And for better and for worse, then you see... flip-flop and it's kind of cool unquote yeah Yeah. according to sydney long eggers doesn't shy away from depicting the behavior of men stranded without female company, synthesizing the yonic imagery of pits and mermaid gills, with the phallie of riding tentacles and towering lighthouses into a powerful orgy of homoeroticism that eventually <laughs> teeters into toxic masculinity. Enriched <laughs> by the, yeah I know, enriched <laughs> by the conventions of a time period, Winslow is often humiliated by his chores, not because they're difficult, but because he feels like a quote-unquote housewife the dissection of how men behave when constantly reminded of their animalistic nature and deprived of women to feel superior to play to plays out with horrific grace in eggers capable hands unquote
1: oh yeah i mean the imagery itself is very telling when we see that montage of like the sea creatures and the stabbing motion and stuff like that. Um, it's pulsing with this sexual energy that has nowhere to go. So it's turned inward and on each other. And there's kind of an Im- imbalance to the film because the men, especially Ephraim, has no one to relate to in a way that makes him feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that turns hostile so quickly. And. Mm-hmm. It really makes you question what kind of predicament a woman would be in if she was introduced to this equation. Hmm. (laughs) Like, how different would their behavior be, and how different would this movie be if there was actually, like, a real woman who was a or part if of they were story. both women instead of men too yes. right yeah That's
2: so
0: true you know I was uh, talking to my husband Luke about this and Luke was saying how um, this was a very good film representing what men are like yep yep my husband with said the exact same other thing. men like mm-hmm. just power farting in everyone's faces <laughs> and not talking. And arguing over nothing. And arguing over nothing. Talking about nothing. You know, he'll be like, "Oh, like you had you talked with your friends? Like how are your friends doing?" I was like, "We're doing good." We talked about this and this and this and this and this is this and this and this and this and this. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh wow!" And I was like, "What? Like guys, your guy friends? You do, you don't talk like that to each other?" And he's like, "No, we just kind of sit around." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But I thought that was so interesting. It's like, yeah, like, that's so true. This film would have been completely different if a woman was in, it was there, or if they were both women.
2: Absolutely. It would
0: have been, yeah, a completely different film. I love that. Uh, I want to end this topic with a quote from Matthew Jacobs, who says, quote, every issue that arises when sharing a confined space, bottled up emotions, chores, boredom, meals, hormones, flatulence turns into a power struggle, unquote.
1: It sounds like Kyle describing the army. No, that is exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it is.
0: Yep. Okay. So let's get into our next topic, which our dear friend Kate here is much more (laughs) knowledgeable about (laughs) than we are. Uh, Let's talk about the lighthouse and modern myth. So,
2: it's fair to say that this film is like a mythology nerds dream Mm -hmm. there's lots of rich symbolism and representation to classic literature and myth and legend and i just i felt like a visual glutton taking it all in i was just nerding out in the theater it was great (laughs) yes um so prometheus is frequently and prominently referenced throughout the film um, good morning, Nancy, has actually talked about Prometheus before in the episode on the film Prometheus.
1: <laughs> oh, thanks for promoting another episode. You. <laughs> yeah, wow. you Gotta listen to them <laughs> all. <mole>.
0: Yes, <laughs> just like Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> gotta listen to, to them all. all. <laughs> oh
1: my God, are you guys dads actually? Like... Oh, Whoops. maybe. <laughs>
2: Um, so for those that don't know, in the super duper Oprah simplified version, um, Prometheus was a titan in Greek mythology who stole fire from the gods, representing life and prosperity and knowledge, and gave it to humanity because humans can't do anything for themselves anymore. <laughs> Um, useless was, piles of garbage. They were yeah. so pathetic. He's like, okay, this is just sad, and just gave them fire. <laughs> um, and, and Zeus was really pissed about this, so he bound Prometheus to a rock where every day an eagle would come and eat his liver, um, but each night it would grow back and heal, just to be eaten again the next day. Which is such a dick move. Just,
0: oh, just
2: typical. Um, so in ancient Greece, coincidentally, liver was often thought to be the seat of human emotions for reasons I guess I don't know why
1: oh um, my god so crazy because they drink themselves into oblivion in yes <laughs> I was just about
0: to say that their livers yep. are shot to hell in this film
2: yeah. <laughs> oh interesting oh. Yes! Mm. So the lighthouse itself could be seen as representing that fire and life and knowledge. And over the course of the film, Wake guards the tower from Winslow and the enlightenment that it holds. Winslow covets this and does everything he can to get to that spiraling peak and experience the light for himself. But after his exposure to it, we see Winslow fall from the spire and end up sprawled naked on the rocks below the lighthouse with his bowels being eaten by birds. Mm -hmm. Symbolism! (laughs) And his punishment essentially for life, uh, for light and life is his own demise. Mm. And opposite to Winslow's Prometheus is Wake's Proteus. Now, proteus was called the old man of the sea by the poet homer and he was a prophetic uh, sea god of oceans and river bodies representing the ever-changing nature and movement of water uh, he was a shapeshifter a trickster and a curmudgeon who refused to share his knowledge with anyone but those who could catch him basically just lived his best life
0: oh, um wow that is <laughs> that is definitely wake
2: yeah that's my retirement yeah. plan just to be like a curmudgeon who refuses to share knowledge with anyone except for those who can catch me yes so. it's yes. just good to times. be just to be an old woman of the sea oh absolutely living in a lighthouse it's, it's the dream um oh my God.
0: so <laughs> wait so, wait wait and you're in the water and yep, a boat yep. comes by and yep. <laughs> they're like "Ooh, look a, a lady!" and you just stick you're a middle catch uh, just a middle finger <laughs> comes out of the water and you're like, just come on out. Bye.
2: And you swim away. Bye, just flipping the double bird and sink back in. That's great. It's the dream, yes. Gracie. It's the dream.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Luckily, I'm in Maine, so I can make this happen. Yes. Um. Yes. <laughs> um so as, as uh, Vinnie Manscoot, or Mancuso of The Collider points out, this is an interesting play between one figure of giving um, and one figure of hoarding, so it's the give and take. Mm. Prometheus pursues knowledge while Proteus keeps it for himself as, and I quote, a prickly old shithead, unquote. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. uh, Director Eggers said in an interview with Vox, we realized, well, Prometheus and Proteus never got to hang out in any Greek myths before, but that seems to be kind of what's happening here so you have two ancients in an enclosed space duking it out over the flame of knowledge
0: go it's just it's oh great. my gosh oh ding my ding and, you know i just thought of this um like the one-eyed seagull could that mm-hmm. be odin the one-eyed Maybe. norse god like i had i actually had to look up what odin represents and he re- apparently represents wisdom death and frenzy Yes.
2: The myth goes that Odin uh, took his own eye and even hung himself from the world tree in order to see everything that happens in the world, just Mm. gain the ultimate wisdom. So again, it's that representation all comes back to the pursuit of knowledge of what is and was and will be, but at significant cost to
0: oneself. Sweet. That is amazing. Um, I just wanted to quickly mention some lovecraftian influences which my friend ben recently tweeted uh ben is the host uh he and his wife host a podcast called last year's horror i was a guest on it not too long ago um but he tweeted recently how he doesn't like the term lovecraftian and because lovecraft was a racist asshole um (laughs) and i forgot off the top of my head. I can't even remember what he said it should be called, but it's like maybe cosmic horror, I guess, is what it really should be called. Oh, I like
1: that. Sure, (laughs) yeah.
0: Cosmic horror, Cthulian horror. Uh, But Richard Newby said that there's a possibility that Wake is something much more ancient an eldritch horror befitting the stories of HP racist asshole Lovecraft's (laughs) (laughs) tentacled elder things. Like, perhaps Wake is simultaneously all of these beings, the ultimate form of judgment in the purgatory Ephraim finds himself in. While Thomason, who is from The Witch, feels herself torn between puritanical equivalences of God and the devil, with the former seeming far, like a far harsher figure, Ephraim is at the mercy of an entire pantheon of gods and demons, unquote.
1: I love that. Yeah. And a
0: lot about what cosmic horror talks about is the, uh, the knowledge, right, of Mm Of being confronted with who you really are and where you really come from. Mm -hmm. And what that is actually, and I, we talked about this in our Prometheus episode. Uh, but one of the scariest things for me is when you are confronted with something that you thought was true and then it ends up not being true. Like in the mountains of uh, madness, um, they talk about how like, we aren't, like, we, we aren't created by, like, either God or from just nature, right? We, we aren't mm-hmm. even uh, beings that evolved from animals. Like, we are, like, created by these elder things, like these ancient, horrific monsters. And when you're confronted with that knowledge, with everything that you thought was true, ends up being a lie, you feel uh, like you're going mad, because everything that you once thought was true is now completely gone and you like where are you you're at square one you know yeah and I think that that's one of the scariest things apart about horror in general is maybe finding out something isn't true or that the people that you trusted end up being monsters you know very much like the invasion of the body snatchers right yeah. like your friends Ooh, yeah. Are your enemies and that actually brings us into our final topic uh, lies in the lighthouse uh, Kate why don't you go ahead and tell us what you think about it
2: yeah um, as you all mentioned earlier a commonly embraced theory about this film is that Winslow and Wake are really the same person mm. um, they have both lied about their identity and coincidentally they have the same first name um, Winslow audibly breaks his leg on the fall from the um, fall to the rocks from the top of the, the spire. And you see Wake walk with a limp on the same leg throughout the film. Um, maybe this is all pl- uh, just a play in one man's head. Like He's he's his own helper and hinderer in pursuit of knowledge and redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, he's warning of his uh, the hubris of his pursuit he of the fall of grace his punishment um, it's the older younger kind of play too mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's also the aspect of the unreliable narrator now an unreliable narrator is someone who guides the story but whose credibility has been compromised in some way
0: right like uh, Lolita is probably a really good absolutely. example yeah, oh, yeah. Um, fight
2: clubs another one mm-hmm. um, just This is most often used to force the audience to reconsider the perspective they've been presented the entire time and reevaluate what they've seen so Mm -hmm. just like wait what did i go and force you to go back and reevaluate it um this film isn't directly narrated by winslow but a lot of it's presented from his point of view yeah you get flashes of what you think is his past of being in the woodlands and losing the co-worker um but don't have real context for these visions until later in the film when he monologues about it. Um, Then you begin to piece together that this man is not who he says he is, but maybe it goes farther. Maybe he's not where he thinks he is. Maybe he's not when he thinks he is. There's even throwbacks, you know, to Willem Dafoe's few times going, you know, like, how much time has passed, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and he doesn't even know. Um, Perhaps all of this, the lighthouse, the island, the mythic visions, and even Wake himself, is all in his head. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he is Wake, and that dissociation from reality creates an unreliable narrative, and by the film's end, you find yourself just questioning everything and going a little bit crazy, just as Winslow does. Um, And the feel of losing your handle on reality is so palpable and makes you want to rewatch the movie again and again just to get a handle on where and when everything just slips through the narrative cracks.
0: I think that it's one of the things that really stood out to me when it comes to the lies that are happening in this because um, Ephraim lies about his name and stuff Mm -hmm. and, and takes the identity of the man that he supposedly killed um, and he starts hearing, like, he's, he starts thinking that um, Wake has killed his last, um, you know, his last Linky. colleague, which is interesting yeah. because maybe he did. Again, that goes with, are they the same person? Like, they're yep. both feeling guilt for, for killing their colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think another thing that's really interesting, and this sort of goes with, you know, what time is it? Where is this? Is time even linear in this story? Um, because there are there are scenes where uh, Wake talks about how he lost his leg, yeah, and he has a wooden leg, and that story changes I think twice, maybe more mm-hmm. than that, but I noticed it twice. It changes twice, and then there's the scene where they're dancing, and Wake is moving like he's like doing like a jig, and he's mm-hmm. moving his his leg that's supposedly wooden and that's supposed to be like straight that he's a limp with and instead he's like bending it and he's like dancing and I that's the first time that I had noticed it when I watched it this past time for the show I was like wait a minute he has a wooden leg how is he dancing like that also wake just appears sometimes like yes Yes.
2: nowhere yeah like there's a few shots where like where where the hell was he he just like he just appears and we noticed on the last run he's like what that there's no way he could have walked in because he just he just walked in and there's no like he comes out of like a beam at one point and then all of a sudden like he's walking around a room empty and then he just appears like it's
0: it's weird (laughs) you know and i don't want to spoil um i don't want to spoil the film uh i'm thinking of ending things have you both seen that yet not yet god damn it
2: it's
0: okay okay. damn it okay i will i will just say that movie also has an unreliable narrator and stories surrounding that person's identity change Mm -hmm. and that is and then you find out exactly what's happening at the end and it's really spooky and that is sort of what happens in this too it's like you think that you know what you're seeing and then small little hints start popping up and you think is this happening now or is this like happening like almost like that film and then juan is uh, the grudge is another good example where time is not linear inside the house that's haunted like time Mm is like all over the place and that's sort of like
1: what'd you say oh sorry sorry (laughs) i'm like so (laughs) excited i'm like oh my god no 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 like i want to hear what you have to say um did anybody um the scene where Ephraim walks out onto the rocks and he's, like, looking in the lobster trap and mm-hmm. he sees the one-eyed wiki. Mm-hmm. Did anybody think that that was Thomas? Like, Willem Dafoe's character? Because it no. looked like him to me. You know, I didn't. I oh. always thought that
0: that was the colleague that he killed, but it could easily
1: be it could that Well, because I'm, it could I'm be thinking, him. like, did thomas kill his wiki and assume the identity of that man. oh my lord something like that and then or got, is, it like, is it just a
2: projection
1: is it right. just uh, projection?
2: like is it the same thing because again like we said earlier it's you know the same co-worker died and they feel guilty about it and like is it is it just one co-worker is it even real is this all
1: projection is it like oh my god
2: well so you got crazy. like
1: the one-eyed wiki that dies, and then you got the one-eyed gull mm-hmm. on the island mm-hmm. that Ephraim ends up killing anyway, so That's then true. you've got, like, Thomas's guilt about that, and being like, oh, geez, like, he already died once. No. <laughs> Is it terrible that the part
2: where he killed the gull, I couldn't stop laughing? Okay. Oh.
1: Oh, my God.
2: I, I was like, I think, de- I think he's dead. I think he's dead. Uh, <laughs> I lost
0: my shit. We, that's why we call so... overkill. Seriously. <laughs> it's like, dude. 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 Okay, it's, yeah, like you said. Yeah, okay, it's dead. Oh,
1: stop. Oh, my God. The curse. The curse. The curse. The curse. Yeah. As soon as I, he did it, I was like, well, they're fucked. <laughs> Oh, my oh. Lord.
0: Hey, listeners, if you think you know what's happening in this film, please let us know. Uh, if
1: you think you know what's happening, you're wrong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, if you I, know what year it is, please write to us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good morning,
0: Nancy, at gmail.com. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, well, that's the end of the episode, but before we get into the finality, let's talk about some good things that have happened lately. Let's talk about some sugar cubes and our coffee. Uh, Abby, why don't you go first? Oh, thanks! <laughs> because, well, yeah, I'm. I should have you go last, because yours is pretty epic. <laughs> is. I know, sorry guys. Sorry. But you go first, because it's very exciting.
1: Um, well, my, uh, boyfriend and I got engaged Woo-hoo! this past week, oh. yes, yes, uh, it was really cute and very mushy and gross and romantic, yeah. um, Aww. and I love the ring, it's exactly what I had pictured, and Kyle did a great job with the proposal, so Aww, I'm very that's happy very excited yes. yay so yay. happy so happy thanks um
0: i guess my sugar cube <laughs> is like nothing compared to yours oh stop <laughs> it my sugar cube is that uh i decorated the outside of my house for halloween yes. so it's all sparkly yes. and pretty and i took a life-changing bath right before we recorded this episode <laughs> oh yes bath. <laughs> Yes, I soaked my sad, sad body. (laughs) (laughs) Kate knows. Kate understands. I do. I soaked my body in Epsom salt and lavender and it was a dream come true. Oh, yes. That's my sugar cube. Kate, how about you? What's going on with you?
2: Oh my goodness. What's my good sugar cube? Um, I went apple picking on Friday with my little baby boy oh, and yay. that was pretty fun. We got a ton of apples, so I'm gonna be Aww. making crockpot apple butter and pies and all sorts of delicious things. So I'll oh have my to send some out to you. Yes. And uh um, just enjoying, enjoying a good weekend, just hanging out with my son and my husband, and drinking cider cocktails and watching really good movies, and just kind of having a little bit of relaxation time in a really, really crazy, crazy age. So yeah, that's my sugar cube right
0: now. Do you and uh, Chris, your husband, you guys, you did a uh, drinking game to the lighthouse, didn't you? We did. It didn't go well. <laughs> oh no. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah.
2: It, it, we, we kind of fell off with it because it got a little bit extreme. Oh We're like my gosh. Running out of cider. Um, oh dear! It, it was like every time a foghorn uh, goes off, which was like a lot. Oh no! Um, every time you see a bird. Every time one of the Thomases smoke. Every time one of the S- Thomas's farts. Every time. <laughs> oh my There's God. A, like sexual tension between them. Oh like my it was, lord! It got to the point where like we we are just gonna be drinking solidly for two hours. Oh my gosh. You you are going to be
1: wasted in like the first half hour.
2: (laughs) That's what we're like okay, we got to
0: slow this down. Oh my God. But it was fun. It was very, very fun. Oh, good. Aww. Well, I'm just so happy, Kate, that you joined us. Thank you so much. And Abby, as your friend and co-host, I am so thrilled that you are engaged to the love of your life. Yay. And Thanks. I cannot wait for the wedding. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful.
1: Same. Oh, <laughs> yes.
0: Spooky well, that- wedding. Yes. Okay. Spooky wedding. Yes. October wedding. <laughs> Please, yes. somebody get married in October at the yes. well. We have friends that got married in October. Please, somebody get married on Halloween. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. This is the final regular episode of season eight. As always, Abby and I like to take a few weeks off in between seasons to recharge our batteries. So make sure to follow us on social media for our return with season nine. If you are one of our Patreon patrons, you are in luck because we have a special episode coming out for patrons and only patrons. Abby and I will be discussing the 1999 Tim Burton film, Sleepy Hollow. Yes! And it is premiering on our Patreon the Tuesday before Halloween. It will be available to all patrons, no matter what tier you are in. And we are making this a bonus episode as a huge thank you for our patrons who have stuck with us all through the trials and tribulations of COVID-19 so thank you all so much for keeping Abby and I in business. We really, truly would not be here without you. So you get this fun special episode, and it is just for you. So Yay. thank you.
1: Yeah. As a patron, I'm oh very
2: excited. Yay! <laughs> yes!
1: Exciting times. And like Gracie said, don't forget to follow us on social media: Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nan see podcast don't forget to also please tell a friend and spread the word about our show oh and if you can please consider donating either your time or finances to the black lives matter movement as well as to trans lifeline links are in the show notes of this episode
0: we love you all to death have a good morning
1: bye bye